And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! Here we are again, and it's just you and me this time. We've had guests for several weeks. Brilliant yes. guests. Guests yes. who are smarter than we are. Every guests them? who are more articulate than we are. Every one of them? Every one of them. So, and um, but But you're off to have adventures. You're going to Canberra. I've got all kinds of things coming up. I mean, next week will be interesting because my sister-in-law's in town, so I've got family here. And then, yes, the week oh. after that, two weeks away, I will be in Canberra for the Australian National Science Fiction Convention, which should be interesting and good fun. I will see all sorts of uh, interesting people. I'll be on some panels. Uh, Nalo Hopkinson, who was here just a week ago with us, mm -hmm. will be uh, the guest of honor, so she'll be great fun, I'm sure. And, you know, I'm, I'm toying with various podcast alternatives. Um just to sort of, just because I can't help it, but I'm not sure if any of them will come to fruition yet, so we'll see. Well, if we get any kind of fragmentary podcast or partial podcast or whatever, we can see what happens there. But we should extend our congratulations to our fellow nominees in all the categories of the Dithmars. Well, yes, I mean, we, I, was, I should have said that as the Australian, sorry, as the Australian National Science Fiction Convention, Gary, they'll be presenting the Dithmar Awards at, at the convention on Sunday evening. Uh, I believe mm -hmm. Deborah B. and Cotty will be the Toastmaster, uh, and I've been exhorting her to add both bubble guns and uh, kazoos to the ceremony. She's yet to uh, respond to this in any useful way. I, I, I call out to you now, Deb. It's time to make the Dittmar ceremony more fun. I think Tell we me what the Dittmar looks like. What is a Dittmar? I've not seen a Dittmar. Okay. Do you have a Dittmar? I... <laughs> Well, yes, but it's not going to help anybody f to, for me to show them up, to hold it up. But if, if you can say something for a second, I will whiz to the other side of the room and grab one. Hang on. Well, okay, what I'm going to say is that uh, what this field needs, and if, if the Hugos won't do it, okay. the Dittmar should do it, would be an actual award in the form of a kazoo. An award that you could – oh, that's a very nice-looking award. Yes. I mean, okay, we should explain that Jonathan and I are actually looking at each other on FaceTime while we're recording this podcast, and he's holding up a black obelisk, which is clearly based on 2001. With, uh, and, and, and you look at it, and you say, my God, it's full of stars. That's right. That's almost completely correct. The official format for the Dittmar is that it's of the same dimensions as the obelisk from 2001, and mm. it will have marked upon it this, the Southern Cross the distinctive oh. uh, st uh, star configuration visible from the, the Southern Hemisphere here in Australia. Yes. And this particular one that I'm holding up, which was one by, oh, look, me, in 2003, was one of the nice ones, big, black, solid obelisk. There have been various forms, some more successful, some less, but this was a particularly good year. And I won two that year, so they're even better. I'll put that down with a thump because they're big. There you go. Mm -hmm. uh, and they will be presented on the, uh, as I said, Sunday evening by Deborah B. and Cotty. Uh, before dinner, which I think is very civilized. That is extremely civilized. I thought so. Um, or no, Saturday. Sorry, Saturday night. I'm, I'm, I'm saying. Oh. And anyway, and of course, we're up for the Dittmars. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's also and... other people. Yeah, hey, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's be honest. It's Look, it's time, Gary, that I think we embraced our naked ambition and revealed the true evil nature of our podcast, Gary. Which is to get a Dittmar? Yeah, well, no, I can't say well, the thing is, credit no, the thing is, Gary. Yeah. Okay, I've gotten like I've got okay, I've gotten a few awards. You've gotten more awards in this field than I have. I've gotten academic awards, and they're usually plaques and that sort of thing. Now that Dittmar is really cool looking. The nebulas are really cool looking because you get this you know piece yeah, yeah. of blue site, blue site with with a galaxy inside it. Um, I, th th those are terrific. Uh, a plaque with your name on it is nice. You hang it on the wall, but it's not cool. Yeah. The World Fantasy Award is something you hesitate to show to your friends. <laughs> though, mean, we love it, though we love it, Gary. We love it. We love it. It's meaningful to us. You know, I've got uh, I've got my sailor cap on it right now. Um, you do play dress. And the Hugo Award. Gary, that's disturbing. The, well, the Hugo Award is classic. The Hugo Award yes. is the only thing in the field which basically is like an Oscar in that the design changes only uh, marginally from year to year. The base changes... Various other things change, but mm. basically it's a rocket ship. The same rocket um, ship from the same. I think the same people manufacture the rocket ship actually every year. I think probably they do. So, the, so the base is, is is where the contest comes in. My point is that I think we should start looking at awards, uh, not according to prestige, not according to how they're determined, not according to whether they're voted on by experts or voted on by a mass audience, but whether they look really cool. And I think that Dittmar looks really cool. I think it's about the coolest looking award I've seen. 
Well, you haven't seen it up close, Gary. You're only seeing it on like FaceTime. Uh, but it is pretty cool. I was very, very pleased and proud to win it. It was the same year that I won the um, uh, the Criticism Award, the William Atling, which is presented as a Dittmar. Though it's one of those you know, not actual Dittmars. And I should say, by the way, that when you're referencing the uh, nebulas and talking about how they had galaxies inside them, I felt like mm. I needed to add that John W. Campbell Award sort of, you know, addition. Uh, you know when they say, in brackets, not an actual uh, Hugo? You need to sort of say, like, in brackets, not an actual galaxy. It's actually like some little shiny ball suspended in Lucite meant to look like a galaxy. I didn't think it was a real galaxy. I, I felt it was worth I, clarifying. I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 th- I think, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. It's, it, but but, it, but it's, it's, a, it's a cute-looking thing. It's a cool-looking thing. Okay. Um, I want to talk to you about something about this, because this is relevant, other than looking for cool... Do- I mean, you know, Doctor Who reckons bow ties are cool. We've now decided that we want to find a cool award so we can have lots of them because they look cool, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. And t- just for that reason. Um and I must say, I've seen some awards with either quite uncool and some that are really, really remarkably on, uh, interesting looking um, um, awards. Uh, so cool is good. And I'm, I'm all behind the, the whole cool thing. Um, but maybe it would be interesting for a second to talk about it, why we think it matters at all. Uh, as, and I don't know if this is too, too much of an old subject for us that we've gone around. And if we go back through the podcast, we'd be appalled at the hundreds of hours we've spent talking about it. But as you know, Gary, there is a discussion. There's always a discussion that well, a bunch of discussions that go on after the, the Hugo ballot comes out. There's one going mm-hmm. on at, at the moment, quite a, a passionate one about um, awards and about the Hugo Award and about how it's run. Why do they matter, Gary? To whom? Uh, there, there, there are two ways of answering that question. Uh, having been nominated, and we're nominated again this year, they, they matter because it's really cool to be nominated for an award. So, so the answer to the question is if you're in line to be nominated. And categories in the Hugos have been historically democratic, very democratic. I mean, if you're, not, if you're not a professional, you can be a fan. If you're not a fan writer, you can be a fan artist. If you're not a fan artist, you can be a fan caster, which sounds like something I don't want to explore too much no no but but by and large uh there are a lot of opportunities for being nominated yes. so the sense of being recognized within the field the sense that there are some limited number of people however small that uh, think you're worthy of an award and some usually smaller number of people who think you should actually win it that is is a terrific feeling it's it's a way of making it's, it's a way of validating your participation in the field that's for the people who get nominated for yeah. the people who are readers, for the people who uh, are fans, uh, the, 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 the great mass of people, the thousands of people who are going to show up in uh, San Antonio, for example, um, and are not going to be nominated or not doing anything, not trying to be nominated, don't care if they're nominated, what does it mean to them? Is it a reading list? Um, is it a big party to go to? Um, I'm not sure. Well, I think... I think when I was a kid, I thought that the Hugo Award list was a reading list. I've felt less and less that way as the years have gone by. But then I'm kind of professionally involved in the field. Well, that's part of your journey into the heart of the field, if you like. Because I was going to say, I mean, if you look at the numbers involved, right? Mm-hmm. And let's take the Hugos because they were being discussed. Um, there's about 80 or 100 people nominated all up on the ballot. Mm-hmm. There's 1,340 people who nominated an all-time record. There will probably be three or four thousand people in San Antonio. I don't know. The, the Worldcon numbers are somewhere in those kind of ma- yeah. things. So it doesn't really matter. And they're the people that actually vote. And then there's a much larger, unknown community sized group of people who are aware of the existence of something called the Hugo and pay a little oh. bit of attention to it once a year when the ballot comes out and not before and not a long, long after. And then I guess there's an even larger, more diverse group who they see the name Hugo Award on a book and go, oh, That'll be some kind of indicator of quality, just like when I pick up a bottle of wine in a uh, bottle shop and it has four uh, little gold medals on it, some from some wine festival I've never heard of in my life. Right, but, hey, exactly. it's got a gold medal. That's got to be pretty good. So, I mean, I think that's true. I, well, the people uh, this is interesting because, um, as, as I've mentioned before, I, I teach at a university and there are people at the university who uh, the, the, my dean sent out a an email notice that, that we were nominated for the Hugo and for the Dittmar. And I heard back from people. And it's surprising how many people have heard of the Hugos. I mean, it is, I don't, it's probably as well known in the general reading community as, as the Edgar is. But what it's known for are the winners. 
the people I know who are not regular science fiction readers will, as you say, pick up a book if it says Hugo winner on it. They will pay attention to who wins the Hugo Awards. They pay no attention at all to who's nominated, and they pay virtually no attention to any other category besides novel. Yeah. I think that's probably true, and I think as you go down through the lists of uh, nominees, which interest me greatly, and I know interest you greatly and interest other people uh, a lot, uh, outside that core group, you're right. Once you get beyond the 1,340, in fact, once you get beyond half of that group, most of the categories don't uh, don't interest people, because if you look at the actual breakdown of nominations by category, you'll see that, yes, there was, say, 1,340 people nominated all up, but, yeah. you know, 1,100 people voted for novel, which means 200 people didn't bother. 600 people voted for best short story, which means 700 people didn't bother, you know? All right. So there's, there's a, a reducing size population. What does it mean to those people? Now, I can think back to when I first encountered organized science fiction. I mean, I started reading science fiction when I was seven. I had no idea of anything. I probably became aware of the Hugo Award at some point in the following five or six years because I'd see it typed on things but i would but but it would have been 1984 that i became aware of the hugo as an active thing and then for the next six to ten years i treated it as a serious thing that was some measure of excellence and that you really really wanted to read all of the books that were nominated and every time sometimes i mean the more what what that led me to do was read widely enough that I began to f- develop what I would consider a much more informed opinion. So I could sit there and go, wow, you know, in, say, 1987, if you look at the Hugo ballot, when mm-hmm. Speaker for the Dead won, a book that I actually liked at the time, though I don't know how to feel about it now, Count Zero, which I was a bit disappointed in, Marooned in Real Time, which was quite a good Werner Vinge novel, Black Genesis by mm-hmm. L. Ron Hubbard, I remember being appalled that book made the ballot at the time. Just as I would imagine if you know we would have been appalled today. And Bob Shaw's Ragged Astronauts, which is a pretty good Bob Shaw novel. Um, and there are other things, I'm sure, that were on my mind at the time that should have made it. I had a passionate feeling and felt very invested in it in a way that I, in some ways I don't now. So, you know. But I don't that- think I ever got that invested. I, I, I do remember thinking uh, back in the 80s uh, yeah. that not every I, – I, I wouldn't feel obligated to read everything that came up uh, on the Hugo Ballot. Neuromancer, when it came along, struck me as being so different. It struck me this is huh. a different direction for science fiction. This means something new. This is not your, this is not your daddy Hugo. Yeah. Uh, this was not a 1970s Hugo. This was a 19, and that novel really impressed me. But at the same time that that happened, uh, the L. Ron Hubbard, the Bridge Publications, the famous mm-hmm. uh, yeah. attempted, uh, sure. the, the idea of gaming the Hugos, the idea of flooding the Hugo. Uh, be, something I also became aware of that year, that sure, if you're sure. a large enough organization, you can get something nominated, which is, as you say, pretty appalling. Well, it, 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 it's uh, appalling, so, but I mean, it's, it's also a popular, a popular award, because I mean, if you look through periods, you'll see authors have their, 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 their time in the sun. You know, they're popular, they get nominated a lot, maybe they win, maybe they don't, and then they begin to drift out again, you know. The trust factor that we used to have, or at least that I assumed we used to have, was that the people who voted on the Hugo Awards were people who read a lot of science fiction, more than one or two books, sort of compared it with other things, made choices about what they liked and what they didn't like. That, that may have been a utopian vision, and maybe the Hugos were never like that. Uh, I was never, uh, in, as a kid, uh, assuming that the Hugos could be organized, uh, that Hugo votes could be organized by a large, well-funded private publishing enterprise that wanted to promote their dead hero. Well, no, but but I I think back to the you know, the eighties Hugo's when I was following it the way I did. I never thought about the voting process at all. Honestly, I never thought about how they arrived at the winner. I don't think in any meaningful way. I I couldn't hope to attend a world world con. You know, I lived on the other side of the world. Airfares were vastly expensive well, at true. that time, yeah. so I wasn't going to be going to a convention. Uh, so the voting just happened. You know, a, a ballot came out. I'd look at it and go, "Gosh, I've read those. I better read that one." They got it right there, or that's a strange choice. I was informed, though. You know, I mean, I can look even now. I can look at say the next one along the 1987 Hugo ballot. I can look down that ballot and I can argue quality in every category. I will say Um. there are different criteria that come into play now as well, and we're all aware of them. I mean, uh, Paul Kincaid has a very interesting post out there in the world right now about Hugos, and one of the things he talks about is the development of discrete communities and how discrete communities. Uh, feel they 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 want, they want to have a stake in these awards, which they're encouraged to have, I think, 
but they don't see themselves represented. So now when I look at the, the 1987 ballot and I say to you, I can argue quality, I've got to sit there and go, but it's five middle-aged white men up for best novel. It's five middle-aged white men up for best novella. It's three white middle-aged white men and two women up for novelette, you know, and it's only when you get down to maybe short story that by chance there's a bit of uh, diversity. And I don't recall ever being a topic of conversation. And that's a great change in our field that we're actually being aware of the fact that we're excluding these people. But the rest of it's well, a popularity thing. But also, and well, this is, yeah, sorry, continue. Go No, go, finish your thought. Finish your thought. Well, the rest of my thought, I guess, goes like this. I look at that ballot and I had the time in my life to read it all. And I was informed. Mm -hmm. And I would argue with people. I'd say, look, in 1987, the best novels were The Uplift War by David Brin, The Forge of God by Greg Bear, Seventh Son by Orson Scott Card, The Earth of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe, and When Gravity Fails. The Uplift War won. I could argue quality on all of those books now. I could tell you that David Brin's book is a somewhat derivative, uh, fat 70s-style space opera that really doesn't innovate very much and is based upon a dubious kind of a concept. I could tell you that The Forge of God is a big hard SF novel that actually has a better sequel to it than the, the first one, because Anvil of Stars was the other way around, which was all about the, the right. destruction of, of Earth and what happens after that. And it's actually quite an interesting book, but not a great Greg Bear book. I can tell you that Seventh Son by Scott Card, which is the first book in his Prentice Alvin series, was an interesting Native American-based fantasy novel that at the time I thought was really good, but was a surprising choice. Earth of the New Sun, it's Gene Wolfe coming back to the New Sun. Didn't like the book very much, honestly, so I was, you know, and then you have When Gravity Fails, which is George Alec Avenger's first married Audran no novel, spectacular right. cyberpunk, you know, cyberpunk book, and for my money, at the time, should have won, and now, 25 years later, still should have won, you know? Well, I think I think we can second guess all those things, and I think that the the the, the lists. I mean, it's 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 like looking at Academy Awards. It's like looking at National Book Awards. It's like looking at Nobel Prizes. If you go back and does anybody really want to read Maurice Maeterlinck anymore? How many well, people read Pearl Buck anymore? They may not, um, but but part of the, the the discussion that's going on right now, it's probably one of the more valid ones. People are talking about. I mean, Jonathan McElmott has a post out there about how you talk about the Hugo Awards and the debate and about whether people uh -huh. are being discouraged to to discuss them and everything else. But Ian Mond, I think, makes the more interesting point. I'm pretty sure it's him. People aren't talking about the books. You know, the non sitting there I going, okay, let, let's look at this this ballot for 2013, or maybe they are. I mean, there are some talk. There's not a lot. Yeah, mm. yeah. Do we honest? Do we feel that these represent the best? We can see their how, how and why they represent the most popular books. Are they interesting books? What are their? I mean, forgetting and everything else. Forget all the rest of the books. These are the five that are up. What are their merits uh -huh. and demerits? When you look at 2312, which is a interesting uh, far future science fiction novel set in an industrial populized solar system, which nonetheless is perhaps a somewhat idealistic and unrealistic future that uh, Robinson has portrayed. I think it's a, it's, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a utopian future, but I think also it's a book which you might say is structurally challenging. Yes, a lot is. of people find it hard to get into. It is. You bet. And that's always always has been the case with Stan and will always be the case. Right. Uh, he's adopted the info dump as part of the artistic tools available to a science fiction reader or writer, and he uses it and he uses it ruthlessly. And I think he's hoping that at the point where maybe you feel your eyes are glazing over, you're becoming more interested because he's giving more detail and more information. And when it works, it works really, really well. Yeah. Um, then you've got, I mean, I've, I confess, of the four books, I've not read Blackout, so I don't currently have an opinion about it. Captain Vorpatrill's Alliance, which would be the, I don't know, it's the 10th uh, or 12th, something like, uh, Miles Naismith for Kosygin novel. For it's, novel yeah. it, it's honestly not even a, sp a space opera novel. It is set on a, a single planet, pretty much. It's about an evolving relationship between a couple. It's a light romantic comedy novel, really, I guess, as much as anything. And it's engaging mm -hmm. and it's fun. I don't think it's particularly interesting or outstanding, but it's certainly entertaining. You know, you've got Red Shirts, which I've also read, which I know you've not read, but you've looked at. And I've read part of John Scalzi is a very good commercial fiction writer. He's very entertaining and engaging. I found that it had a one-line idea that he ran for the length of the book with a few little variations. It was humorous, but not hilarious. It was, it was, yeah, it was all right. It was fine. And it, 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 the, 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 I'm, I'm going to say I read a third of it. This is one of the things I will confess to do. I did not get uh, a copy of it. I did not get a review copy of it. Yeah. And I, 
I'd heard about it, so I I, I, I do this. I, I get a cup of coffee at the Starbucks kiosk in my local Barnes & Noble, and I read a bunch of it, and it reminded me of Galaxy Quest. Well, uh, yes, it is. It's very Galaxy Quest. And it's probably sort of no better or worse than an H. Bean Piper novel from the 50s. But very well done. I mean, he yes, knows it is. No, no, it. it's good. I'm not trying to put it down, but I'm sort of going, okay, mm-hmm. that's fine. And then there's Throne of the Crescent Moon, which is a fantasy novel. It's an uh, Arabian-influenced sword and sorcery book. It's got a great buddy couple. It doesn't do anything particularly innovative with swords and sorcery, really. But that's okay. It's a very entertaining, engaging first novel. It's a good first novel, I think. It has its flaws, Mm -hmm. but it's good. They're they're okay. I mean, if it was me because of the... Now, here's the thing. If it were me because of my prejudices and what I want these awards to do, my personal preferred mission for them, I would choose 2312. I would like to see the Hugo Award as something which recognizes uh, technical and critical excellence in the field, and which in some sense is about advancing some idea of science fiction. But that's my prejudice and my thing. And I, get, I, I cast my one vote with that in mind. I was going to say it, it represents, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you, but for the purposes of the podcast, feel like I ought to disagree. Okay. Um, it represents a... It, it represents a clear advance, a very ambitious, stylistically, structurally, in all kinds of way. And we, we talked about this. I was on the jury of the um, Tiptree Award. Uh, it made the short list for the Tiptree Award because it has a lot of experimental um, stuff about gender and, 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 and um, identity. And it, But it's a Stan Robinson novel. It is essentially Stan Robinson moving his own project forward. What strikes me about this list uh, and that's the only novel that I've actually finished on the list, so that, I'm, I'm biased in that. What strikes me about this list is something we've talked about on the podcast many times before, and that is the unity of the science fiction community in the 50s and 60s, maybe up through the 70s and 80s, has long since atomized. Yes. You're no longer seeing a single community. My guess is that the people who read Mira Grant's Blackout and voted for it are not people who are comparing it to 2312, and the people who are reading... Uh, red shirts were probably not comparing it to Throne of the Crescent Moon. In other words, you don't have a common votership comparing books to each other. You have sure. cliques of voterships. You, in other words, you do have subgroups uh, promoting their own favorite books. Yes, which is perfectly valid because that's what a popular vote award is about. Exactly. I mean, Lois Bujold has had a huge and deserved, well-earned following mm-hmm. for decades now. Yes. Uh, and people look forward, people who look forward to the to the next uh, Vakrosigan novel, look forward to it with a passion that I can only admire. I, I mean, count myself I've among them. them. I've read them all. I've not read all of them. The ones I've read, I've enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can understand that kind of uh, passion. The um, I I don't know what the individual constituencies are for these novels, but my sense is that virtually every novel on this list have a slightly different constituency from every other one. Probably so. It's no it's it's no longer a group of a uh, thousand or twelve hundred general science fiction readers, all reading the same things and picking out their favorites. It's 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 smaller groups of two or three hundred each reading only a few things in their area of interest and choosing the best among those things. Yeah, which I think is fine. I don't have any problem with that. Uh, no, it's 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 if if I were going to come up with a list of the best novels that I think are as science fiction novels during the year, it would not be this list. It would no. have twenty three twelve on it. It. Uh, Throne of the, it's confused because obviously fantasy is now included in the ballots, so that. Uh, well, well I, I don't think confused is the right word. It's it, it's it's mixed. It's mixed. You know, the, the, uh, fantasy has been uh, eligible for a long time, Gary. I know it's been eligible for a long time, but I'm saying if I if I were to come up with a list of the five best science fiction novels of the year, yeah. Throne of the Crescent Moon wouldn't be on it. If I were to come up with a list of the five best first fantasy novels of the year. Throne of the Crescent Moon would easily be there. Sure. Uh, those are different categories. So, um, my point is that people are... Uh, that uh, there, there may be people who feel disenfranchised by the list because they don't agree what's on it. I think one of the things that you see in this list yeah. is a kind of enfranchisement. I think you do find uh, groups that are allied to a certain kind of science fiction or to a certain writer or to a certain community... Uh, managing to get themselves represented here, and I don't necessarily see that as a problem. No, I don't, well, okay, I don't see anything that expands in, that, that, that makes the field more inclusive is a problem. I'm all for more inclusive, and I, I see all kinds of different inclusiveness in the ballot, as we talked about when we t- sat down with Kidge and went through the, the ballot. Um, yeah, right. 
let me ask you this. Is what we're seeing, and is this part of the dissatisfaction, though, that because the these theoretical communities that we're talking about um, are suffi of, of sufficiently small size, that whilst they all vote and nominate, they only really have enough numbers to get maybe one of their preferred works on the list. So what you get is rather than a ballot that represents one uh, one community as a whole, what you get is a ballot that has this work in this category that kind of comes from that, that group and this work in that, which also comes from elsewhere that comes from that group, but the rest of their preferred nominees don't get there. It could be. I mean, we talked about when we were head kids, and we talked about the fact that what I thought was the best science fiction all of the year was M. John Harrison's Empty Space. It's sure. not there, partly because it's not visible, partly because even if it were visible, it would be of interest to a really relatively small subset of the Hugo voting readership, which is no longer, as I said before, no longer a, a kind of unified, uh, consolidated uh, readership, so that... Um, the, the hard science fiction community or the literary science fiction community, which once felt that it may have owned the Hugo Awards, is now a subset like every other subset. Yeah. Um, e except that it comes down to, and this is where other people get annoyed, the people who show up on the day are the people who get to vote. That's true. That's so true. you do get some more, a, a more coherent voting group. And what's more rather than picking their five novels out of all of the ones in the world, they now have to make a comparative judgment between, in this case, well, for best novel, these five. So whilst you may not have chosen to, needed to rank in your own mind previously these five books, now you need to make a relative assessment. Mm -hmm. You know, which is... A and that seems to me to be highly arbitrary. Uh, the books are not comparable in all kinds of ways. They're not trying to do the same sort of thing. Um... But that's where I think the idea of uh, best novel, uh, frankly, breaks down because they're all they're they're really in this list five novels trying to do five very different things for five very different readerships. Yeah. Uh, and I don't I don't necessarily think that any of them are necessarily comparable. Okay. Um, I think when you get beyond the novel category, it gets more interesting because first of all you have fewer votes, you probably have fewer subcategories, fewer subconstituencies. Maybe yeah. Um, and even then, though, uh, what I tend to do in terms of following my reading on no novelettes and novellas, as I've told you many times before, is I look, I look to your judgment in the year's best, well, or to you, Gardner's buddy. judgment in the year's best, or to Rich's, or to David Hartwell's. Um, and because these are editors who I know pr pretty much what the congruence and not congruence of my own taste is, when I look at novella and novelette and short story, I don't know what to think. Again, I think there are subgroups involved here. I think there is some yeah. obviously short fiction that's on here because of just absolutely sheer quality. And there's some short fiction which may be on here because of loyalty uh, to, a, to a favorite writer. And there may be some on here because of just an enormously popular writer. I don't know. Part of me wants to quibble with the idea that there's works there because of sheer quality. This is a popular vote. And quality is a, is a subjective assessment. But, you know, I'll let it fly. Oh, I'm well, that's, yeah, we, we, we could go on philosophically every once in a while. The masses have good taste. Jonathan. Well, no, no, they, they absolutely do. And I mean, and, and po popular votes aren't wrong. It's like um, the, I've, the one book I've not read on this list, Blackout by Mira Grant. Obviously, a whole bunch of people really liked it and yeah. voted for it. And that's a perfect that's what they should do. That, that's perfectly legitimate and fine. Um. I guess we're talking around. I mean, we've moved into talking about what we think relatively about about the nominees for, for best novel this year, which is fine. We started out mm -hmm. talking about the important why these awards, why these or any other awards are important. We never really came to anything coherent about that because we just sort of what we're, we're rambling around again because we didn't know what we we're going to talk about today. Um, one t thing that is relevant to this a discussion I've had elsewhere that I've, I've not had with you lately, I don't think, is what role these awards and other awards, what 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 role their long their nominee list and everything else play in the dialogue with the field? Uh, I was having a discussion with somebody online uh, about the idea of context that as the field grows and spreads and atomizes, which it is doing, and as it, the, the number of awards grows and spreads us more and more and they're, you know, they're, they're vastly welcome things. You know, we've got the Tip Tree Award looking into gender issues. We've got the Carl Brandon Award. Uh, you know, look at uh, 
racial African American issues. Mm -hmm. We've got discrete Prometheus uh, Award for libertarian science fiction. You've got and so on and so on. There's lots and lots and lots of awards. Yeah, which is great. Um, But is there a larger thing still to frame? uh, I mean, what I still try to look at is. What is science fiction, and is it moving forward in some way? Is there some concept of forward, and is it evolving? And rather than saying that when you look for something called context like this that you're excluding, I'm trying uh-huh. to like include and then understand what's le- what, what, what the pattern is you've got. So if we look in 2013, and rather than saying, well, I'm going to define science fiction and, th- and then exclude everything that doesn't meet my definition... I would say, like, let's grab everything together that's called science fiction, right, or fantasy uh-huh. in this case. So, and that, that, that includes things that are the nominees for all these awards and that are talked about. Group them together and try and describe, try and understand what it is, is that's within that context as being science fiction now and assess how our field is going. And to me, one of the things that you get when you bring Hugo Award ballots and Nebula Award ballots and Locus Award long lists and uh, mm. Tiptree long lists and Shirley Jackson Award lists and all these other lists is you get some kind of context for what people are discussing. And at the very least, it's what a combination of a group of judges and a group of people who care enough to actually cast a vote have said. It's true, but I, 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 have, a, I have a problem with the idea that science fiction is, a, is, is an ongoing project uh, in, in the sense that we need to measure its progress according to the Hugo Awards, that the Hugo Awards are supposed to represent some measurable advance in science fiction. That's a classic Victorian progressivist idea, sure. which I don't think has ever held up very well in literature. I mean, you know, was the, was William Faulkner an advance over Kipling, you know, right. was, uh, was, was Ola Stapleton an advance over H.G. Wells? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I think the, uh, the, there are two ways of looking at that. One is... Um, do the do the does the nomination process for the Hugos tend to bring up important works that years later will be important? Now, a couple of years ago, when we were talking to Joe Walton on this podcast about her columns for Tor.com, where she was going through and reading all the Hugo nominees, mm. and her conclusion was that by and large, apart from the actual winners, the nominees list got it largely right. There were the stories yeah. that got nominated tend to be pretty important stories. Um, that's one way of looking at it. That there's a progress. The other way of looking at it is something I mentioned to you before the podcast, which is a, an essay by uh, C.S. Lewis back in the 1940s. Actually, a short book called An Experiment in Criticism, <coughs> in which he was largely intending to defend science fiction and fantasy from the kind of came from from, from the Oxford community in which he lived, and said basically there are some. You know, very important works, and he was talking about George MacDonald and David Lindsay, and to some extent he mentioned Stapleton and Wells also, mm-hmm. um, that have been excluded from the canon because of criticism, because of academia. And the experiment in criticism that he suggested in the book was, let's put a moratorium on all evaluative criticism and scholarship of fiction for about five years and see which books bob to the top. And his argument was, uh, and I don't know, the experiment has never been done and never will be done, so I don't know if his argument is specious or not. But his argument was, there will be the best sellers. There will be the Da Vinci Codes. He didn't use that. Does he get there, there, there will be the uh, flash-in-the-pan bestsellers to become very popular. But five years from now, it's ten years from now, what books are going to be read by people who haven't been told what books to read? Yeah. And if you did that with science fiction... Uh, it would be very interesting to see what happened. I don't recall, for example, uh, Cordwainer Smith winning any science fiction awards during his lifetime. I don't know. I'd have to. I would have to look it up, Gary. I confess to you, but yeah. Well, I, I just looked this up. I know that Frederick Brown won no awards during his lifetime, and yet his stories like Arena and his novels like What Mad Universe and Martians Go Home are still being read. Yep. He's a memorial guest of at, at, at ReaderCon this year. He was so, a Hugo Award nominee. Who did? He was a Hugo and a Nebula Award nominee. A nominee. Okay, not a winner. That's. Mm-hmm. But the point I'm making hey, is... Hey, I'm podcasting, sweetie. 50 years later, 50 years later, you have a um, number of writers who have bobbed to the top, and I know we keep picking on poor old Mark Clifton, and then you have a number of Hugo winners who have disappeared. Um, so does the Hugo Award establish tomorrow's canon? I, I seriously doubt it. I think in some cases it does. 
In some cases, it doesn't. It's a hit or miss kind of situation. Okay, not established, but does it give you indications of what may be the canon? Oh, possibly. Um, and and, and it, it, do we need cannon fodder? I mean, you know. Oh, I knew you were going to say something like that. Thank you. Yeah. I think we should have because a loose Because this, this, this search for context and understanding isn't necessarily progressivist in my mind, nor is it necessarily about canon form formation, which is another issue that we've waffled on about at length here. Yeah. Uh, it's just about trying to understand and get some idea of the shape and what's happening with our field. Well, I, I think it does that. I think in any given year, it gives you a sense of what's happening with the field. Some years, and I'd have to go back and look at all the Hugo nominees over the years to see this is happening, but the, the, the year that struck me was, was mm -hmm. 1984 with Neuromancer. Because that struck me as being, okay, here is a Hugo nominee, and this is before it even won, that seems to represent a radical new direction for the field. It won in 1985. 85, okay, one, it came out in 84, won in 1985. Yeah. Um, that struck me as being something I need to know about science fiction. I had not read Neuromancer. I didn't like the title of Neuromancer. I thought that's a cute title. I don't like cute titles. And after it won the Hugo, I went out and read it, and I thought, okay, I understand why this won the Hugo. This changed the direction of science fiction. If you look at most years' Hugo lists, you're finding writers who are established doing things they do very well. I mean, when you look at, for example, the Bujold novel, it's Bujold writing a Bujold novel. Yeah, you look at the wow. Stan Robinson novel, sure. it's Stan Robinson writing a Stan yeah. Robinson novel. These people are being rewarded for doing what they do very, very well. But they're not shifting the terms of the field in the way that Neuromancer did, what, 30 years ago almost now. No. Well, that, that, that's true, though. It is interesting as well to look back and go that sort of in the year that Neuromancer won the Hugo and the Nebula, the rest of the ballot, I mean, some of it didn't, well, there was some good stuff in it, but boy, some of it didn't sort of shine either. But that's always the case. But it's always the case. I mean, that's what I mean. There are Hugo nominees that just disappear from view altogether. And there are probably some Hugo winners who disappear from view altogether. But if you want to understand what people thought about the state of the field in 1963 or 1975 or 1989, I think the Hugo Award is a good sort of index to what yes, well, the field thought of itself yeah, during those yeah. years. So tell me, is there any value in trying to understand the shape of the field in the way that I'm uh, that, that I'm talking about? Or is it a pointless, quixotic kind of a thing to do? The shape of the field is... It's a fairly abstract a problem, idea, but yeah. Term. I mean, no, they're, they're, my point is, and you've made the same point earlier, is we're not talking about one field anymore. We're talking about multiple fields. But are we really? I mean, you say we're talking about different fields, but, but we're, we're talking about fragmented pieces of the same field, to my way of thinking. I mean, surely, when you look at a science fiction novel that's considered for the Shirley Jackson or for the... Uh, Tiptree, or for the Carl Brandon. It's also still a science fiction novel. That's true. And, and, and I think a, a novel that gets attention across a number of awards with different venues. No, 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 um, no. I mean, irrespective of whether it gets recognized across different awards, no matter what community, surely no matter what community it, it, it strikes a chord with, it's still a science fiction novel. Or a fantasy novel. Which, well, whichever, yeah, but yeah. I think, well, it's, there, there is some common thread. There is some common thread, and you and I haven't talked about this as much as we might have, but let's take two novels that have been up for awards this year. One of them is winning the um, Tiptree Award, and one of them is a, novel, uh, uh, a nominee for the, for, the, for the Eagle. Let's take Stan Robinson's 2312. What did say, Gary? Have they oh, announced the winner of the Tiptree? Huh? Have they announced the winner oh, of the Tiptree? The winner of the Tiptree is the Drowning Girl. Okay. Yeah, so it's case one case. of two winners. Yes. But from from my point is that there is a community which now has to be defined by a readership which will appreciate the extraordinary virtues of Caitlin Kernan's The Drowning Girl, yep. and the same community will appreciate the extraordinary virtues of something like Twenty Three Twelve. That is a much much broader community than existed twenty or thirty or forty years ago in science fiction. Sure. Yes, and I think that's a healthy thing. I think yes, it is. I, I think to some extent, um, it's interesting to me that the um, something like the Tiptree Award was instituted to recommend to, to recognize you know gender bending kinds of 
concepts in science fiction and fantasy. And now those same gender bending concepts are showing up on mainstream ballots. Yes. So to some extent, uh, the field has become more inclusive. And the irony of being more inclusive is that the more inclusive you become, the more excluded some subsets of that field began to feel. Okay. We're no longer the guys who ran science fiction back in the 70s. We're no longer going to have ballots that consist of... Well, maybe Bougie, you know, but, but, but ballots that consist of Greg Bear and Greg Benford and, and, and Stan Robinson and the, the sort of the great writers of the hard SF uh, core of the 50s and 60s and 70s. It's a much broader field than that now. Well, yes, it is, apart from the fact they're all writers from the, the, the 80s that you mentioned. But well, um, <laughs> um, I think it is a broader and more inclusive field, and I think that's always, not as broader and inclusive as it you know, could yet become. I mean, I think we're still on that journey, uh, and we're still finding different ways of um, reaching out to those people and seeing them represented in, in, our, in, in the field and, and recognize that they are a part of our field, and that's a great thing. Oh, we haven't done a very good job of it. I mean, we're doing no. a better job than we used to be. I mean, when you, when you do have an Ora Jemison or a Karen Lord or a Nalo Hopkinson regularly coming up for awards these days, that's something that would not have happened 20 years ago, and it's not something that I think we need to take a smug yep. pride in, but I think it represents some kind of progress. I think Saladin Ahmed being on the Shirsh Hugo ballot <coughs> represents a kind of pro progress simply in the subject matter of the book yep. uh, that he's talking about, the source material of the book. Yep. Um, so so there's, there's an expansion, but every time there's an expansion to include uh, a, a broader base, there are going to be people who felt they were part of the base in the past that begin to wonder, am I being disenfranchised now? Yeah, no, I can understand that. I don't think I don't, they I'm really keep, are. I don't know. I don't know. That, well, there are some people who are disenfranchised or feel it and look at results, and, and you always have to... We are the worst people to have perspective on this, Gary, I think. Mm. And so we I think we're probably... Mm. Well... You can identify yourself as a disenfranchised group in an ethnic, religious, ideological, libertarian, age, uh, gender, in, in, in all kinds of ways. Uh, you could say people who are John Crowley fans feel disenfranchised because there's not enough John Crowley-like fiction showing up on ballots these days. Um, okay, Gary, tell me how I can cast myself as disenfranchised because I'm, 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 I'm up for it. But I am a middle-aged white Anglo-Saxon male living in a Western country from a Christian background who reads and writes English, who votes in the Hugo Awards and has done for the last decade and has been involved in the field for two. So where, which minority group do I belong to? Because, you know... I'm not saying it's... I'm not saying... Or the fran franchise group. You okay, you're confusing enfranchisement with being a minority or special interest group. Uh, if you believe... If some... What my point is that if somebody who is a Chinese science fiction fan who knows a lot of Chinese and Japanese science fiction and, we are, and they're saying this doesn't show up on the book, they're absolutely disenfranchised. The rest of us don't know about it. Um, if you're saying you're disenfranchised because your tastes don't align with the tastes of the Hugo voters, um, I can't say to you you're not disenfranchised based on all kinds of ethnic and demographic stereotypes, but if you feel like your tastes are not represented, you have a right to say, my tastes are not being represented. Well, hang on, okay. But is, uh, okay, let, let's now split hairs even further, because gosh, we don't do that here. Um, is there a difference between disenfranchisement, Gary, and not seeing my taste represented on the ballot? That depends on how you view disenfranchisement. I mean, I don't feel disenfranchised at all in terms of my ability to cast a vote for the Hugo Awards. I've been on juries. I mean, I've been yeah, yeah. super enfranchised. Yes. I've been so enfranchised, I want to stop being enfranchised for a while and not be on juries. <laughs> you want to disenfranchise um, yourself. Okay. I would like to disenfranchise myself. But in, even on the juries I've been on, let alone the Hugo Awards, there are books that I absolutely treasured that didn't get anywhere. Sure, yeah. So my taste didn't get I, – I, I was not able to steamroll people with my tastes. No. Well, once or twice I did, but by, by and large <laughs> So, yeah. so, 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 there's a. There are people I was mentioning. Uh, one of the things I was mentioning 
is there's a writer who wrote a couple of really terrific novels a few years ago named Karen Travis, who's since taking to writing Star Wars novels. Fair enough, yeah. And I read one of them, and it's really pretty good. She's a good writer. Yeah. Um, now, it's possible that people who read Star Wars novels and like them, including very good Star Wars novels, feel disenfranchised from all the awards balloting because nobody wants to vote for a tie-in novel. That does seem That's to be a kind of universal awards prejudice, doesn't it? It, well, that's a universal awards prejudice, but there are people who really like these things, and these things actually are also the only science fiction books that show up on major bestseller lists anymore. Um, mm. I think that there are people who have certain tastes that are overlooked uh, in these awards because there's a sense in most of the awards nominations, both those juried and those that are voted on, that we want to uplift the field. We don't want to recognize the cynical commercial tie-ins. We want to do something that makes us all look respectable by yeah. liking this. Oh, yeah. So somebody who actually reads lots of tie-in novels doesn't get a vote, basically. No, they They're do have their own awards. They do? They do, yes. There actually is a set of awards for uh, media tie-in novels, yeah. Or media tie -in oh, yes, there yes. are. There are. Well, okay, this is what happens. They probably have their own set of awards because of largely being disenfranchised from, from yes. major awards. I think that's probably I mean, true. There's an argument to me, and I've talked to writers, including writers I admire enormously, like Liz Hand, who have done tie-in novels, and there's a particular set of skills involved with that. There are. And uh, so, so, so by and large, what I'm saying is that there are there are special groups defined by um, demographics, yep. gender, nationality, all sorts of things, yep. and there are special groups that can be defined by having peculiarly specialized tastes such as liking tie-in novels. <laughs> uh, the best novel Hugo category includes fantasies, but you're not going to see a lot of urban vampire novel kinds of things on it. Okay. Uh, there's a readership out there, and we've talked about this before. <clears throat> I don't read urban fantasies. I don't read Twilight Monkey novels. I know they're out there. Uh, I know that some of them, simply by the law of averages, probably are really first-rate, and I'm not yep. going to know that. And I'm never going to see them on awards ballots, so I'm never going to find out about those novels. Is it, somebody a flaw, is it a flaw in the awards ballots? Is it a flaw in the awards ballots that you're not going to see them on there? No. Why not? Is, is that a flaw? I don't know. Uh, it means that what it means is that people reading for awards ballots are reading in narrower and narrower areas. I don't think there are enough people. Uh, for example, well, let's take Karen Travis's novels. One of her novels, more than one of her novels, has been on the New York Times bestseller list. Yes. My guess is that 90% of the people who buy books that make the New York Times bestseller list pay no attention to the Hugos at all. Yep. They're not going to nominate books for the Hugos. They're going to read this because it's a tie-in. They may or may not be aware of Karen Travis's skill as a writer, but they know the Star Wars franchise. Yes. So, in a sense, you could say that those people are disenfranchised. Maybe. I, I, I guess this is one of those things. Is the fact that you... You, know, you could take the steps to involve yourself. Is that sufficient def defense against this, some idea of disenfranchisement? You know, like one of the classic defenses that I see mounted on behalf of the Hugo Awards when people feel like they need to defend them, and I don't believe mm. they, they particularly require defending, but let's say they do. One of the defenses is, well, you know, it's a democratic process. You just have to show up, get involved, all that kind of thing. Oh, well, yeah. And that's, that is true, and there actually is a very clear way of getting involved, and it's quite it's been laid out online many times, and if we ever need to, ask us, and hey, we'll go through it too. But a lot of people don't want to do that. They just want to sit there and go, I feel disenfranchised because my Star Trek novel isn't there, and they're not wrong. Um, they don't, and I don't think you have to want to get involved to express that opinion that you have that feeling about a ballot. I think there are two things involved. One is the mechanics of the ballot, the rules of Hugo's, the, oh, yeah, yeah. the kind of thing that comes up, you know, not necessarily a novel, but the thing that has been going back and forth for years. I mean, fan cast is now a category. Semi-prosine is now an incomprehensible category. Those things, if you want to get involved in those, you have to get involved in some way with the administration and politics of the Hugo's awards. Yeah. And all my years as a science fiction reader since I was a kid, I never wanted to do that. It's like becoming... It's like wanting to be on the board of your condo association. <laughs> you know, the people who want to do that are people who need better cable TV programs or something. It, um, yeah, well, it would never have occurred. So, to yeah, me. I don't want to do that. But I can understand people saying, 
look, I think that I should be better represented. I think my voice should be heard in the Hugo Awards, and I don't think I should have to go to these business meetings in order for that to happen. I can sympathize with that. Yeah. I, I, I guess my first point, point. this is where I do perhaps sympathize with uh, Jonathan Mackelmont's views. I think you should be able to talk about your, your dissatisfaction and, and your disenfranchisement uh, openly as much as you want. And then say, look, I looked at the ballot. It doesn't represent me. It doesn't represent my people. I'm not really very happy with it. Yeah, well, fair enough. Which is not the same as saying the process was flawed and anybody did anything wrong. Just I'm not happy with it. It's not what I like. I think that's fine. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a different thing when you, you, you just get sort of getting pulled into having to get involved with these awards. I wouldn't want, it would never cross occurred to me to get involved and actually help run Hugo Awards. And I don't know that I would actually especially want to. But um, I can see people who do. But I don't think, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, let me ask you this. I mean, we talk about the bias against um, Hugo's. Let, let's look at, oh, sorry, no, sorry, against media books. Let's look at a mm-hmm. particular writer and the 2014 Hugo Awards. Okay. Mm-hmm. Alistair Reynolds, who's been nominated, I think, for Best Novella uh, once or twice, I think, for the for the Hugos, but has not been a regular Hugo nominee. Uh, and I don't know that any of his novels have actually ever been no- uh, nominated. Really? I got that feeling. Uh, that this is what I was stuck in my head. I'm, I'm going to double check because, you know, like... That's, a, that's, that's astonishing to me. That's right. He's, he, in fact... Al Reynolds, who I think most people would acknowledge as being a major science fiction writer of the 21st mm-hmm. century, uh, and has been since his debut with Revelation Space in 2001, has had one mm-hmm. Hugo nominee, Troika, that uh, was nominated, which was on the 2011 ballot, which was published in some anthology, Godlike Machines. Um, now, that's his one nomination. So his disadvantage is he's British. Right? Well, it's the yeah exactly. And, and he, has, he, he has two novels coming out this year, mm-hmm. right? He has uh, a book called On the Steel Breeze coming out in August, and a book called Harvest of Time coming out in June or maybe July, I think it is, uh, June. And I'm not sure coming that out where coming coming out where that's a key question. It's coming out from a major publisher in the UK. That's the problem. Now next year, he's going to be on the ballot because it's a UK convention. He won't be on the ballot for Harvest of Time, though, will he? Probably not. And you know why? Why? It's a Doctor Who novel. Okay, this is... Okay, excellent point. Right. Um, here's one of the things that I think is... Uh, it's a bias. I mean, if... Let's say if um, Paul Cornell or Neil Gaiman writes a Doctor Who episode, they've got a very good chance of being nominated in that category. Yeah. <clears throat> if well, Neil is a special case, but if if um, Paul were to write a Doctor Who novel, which he has done, he's not going to get nominated. Yeah. But that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, the, <clears throat> the the works rather than the writers tend to get nominated in some ways, and other ways mm-hmm. the writers rather than the works tend to get nominated. Uh, it's not a it's not a fair system. It's not a rational system, and it's not a system that's consistent from one year to the next. It it it, it omits major writers such as Alistair Reynolds sometimes because of coincidences. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons Empty Space is not on the ballot this year is because it was not out in the United States in time for anybody to see it. Yeah, and is probably you know given circumstance not available now. In the, in the U.S. Exactly. So it's, it's it, you know, and I guess the question would be whether they'll, they'll make it available next year. I don't know. Look, it's an interesting thing. I guess what I can say is that we've, we've managed to fill an hour of podcasts without coming to any point. Do we have a point, Gary? Um, I think I think we've come to a number of points, none of them necessarily defensible. <laughs> uh, I th- I th- one of them being that the Hugo Ballot, like the, like the science fiction and fantasy community in general, has atomized. There are several constituencies represented on the Hugo ballot. If there are going to be limited numbers of constituencies represented on the Hugo ballot, there are going to be people who perceive their own constituency as being excluded from the Hugo ballot. And I can see it both ways. I mean, there are certainly novels on this, novels, short stories, novellas, novelettes, that I would like to have seen on the ballot that aren't there. Um, Am I outraged by that? Uh, no, because most of the things that are on the ballot in place of the things I would have there are things I don't know and haven't read and probably won't read. Yeah. Okay. 
all sounds reasonable to me. I mean, from, from my point, I, all I want is... I mean, I, I still... I will continue to strive to some, some broader view of science fiction and the field because that's a perspective that appeals to me. I accept the idea that the field is atomizing, but I still want to sort of step back far enough to be able to look at those atomized pieces as some kind of a greater whole as well. I can under, I can understand that. <clears throat> Excuse me. There are a lot of ways in which <clears throat> the field can advance, and inclusiveness is certainly a healthy way for it to yes. advance. But if we go back and look at the kind of hard science fiction, uh, hard hard literary science fiction, I think you and I have both had a prejudice for over the years, and Stan Robinson is part of that. When something like a neuromancer comes along, when something like a fractal prince comes along, um, well, actually not the fractal prince, but the one before that, yeah, um, uh, Hanu Rani comes along, you sense, okay, here's somebody who's taking this material and moving it forward. But at the same time that that's happening, and it is happening, yeah. I mean, it's happened with Charlie Strauss. You, you can go ahead and name the number of people that's happened. It's happened with Gibson oh. and Sterling and Charlie Strauss and, 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 and Al Reynolds to some Paolo extent. Paolo Bacigalupi. Paolo Bacigalupi. There's a progress going on there, but that progress is no longer the progress of the science fiction fantasy community. It's mm -hmm. the progress of this corridor of the science fiction and fantasy community. And it may very well be that Solid Anometer, Mira Grant, or... Or, or, or Scalzi are representing progress in other corridors of the same community. Yeah. Okay. And more power to them. I mean, the fact that something is on a Hugo ballot that you don't like doesn't mean you have to read it. That's true. And the fact that something's on a Hugo ballot that you do like doesn't mean other people have to read it. No. You know what I think? I think we just have to allow that we've talked enough about the Hugo Awards <laughs> And we shouldn't talk about them again until ooh, until after Lone Star Con. Probably not. I mean, we've not talked about one of the other things that I was going to bring up at the beginning mm. of the podcast. <clears throat> is that we haven't even talked about the Prometheus Awards, the Clark Award nominations, the Dittmar Award nominations, the Terry Pratchett Award nominations. Uh, there are all these other awards in the field. Well, we talked a little bit, I suppose, about the, um, the Tipfree and so forth. Maybe, um, we need to, maybe we need to atomize our podcast so that other we, we can... <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't have any problem with all these different awards existing, no, no. except that um, I think what these awards recognize is that the field is atomized, and um, and it's atomized in more than one way. I mean, the Carl Brandon Awards were designed to recognize people of color or books about people of color. Which, which is, is a great a completely. Thing. Yeah. It's a, it's a terrific thing to happen. It's an important award, yep. and it fills a gap that needs to be filled. But yes. the Prometheus Awards are based on a political stance, essentially. They're based on a libertarian view of the world yep. that feels, I presume, that these awards were started because these people feel excluded from some in, in some way from the, from the normal awards process. That's an ideological minority. My point is the field is atomized in so many different ways that – you can't expect any one of these corridors, I kind of like mm -hmm. that metaphor, to dominate the Hugo Awards or the Nebula Awards or any single awards from now on. We'll have to see. But in a field that probably has 75 active awards at least, there'll be enough to keep us busy. It'll be enough to keep us busy, and we could probably spend... We could spend the rest of this year's podcast going through award No, I don't want to talk next week. I don't, uh, I, I don't know when we're going to have a podcast next, I, okay, Harry. It'll be someday in the future. We'll talk again. But can we not talk about awards for a good chunk of time? Well, uh, the, reason I, uh, the reason I agree with you about that is because every time I look at a list of award nominees, I feel really stupid. <laughs> Why? It's the amount of stuff I haven't read. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, do I have to read this? Should I read this because the libertarians like this? Should I read this because it's on the Hugo ballot? Should I read this because, you know, and at, at some point it, it comes back to, I can find out what I want to read. I mean, yes. I really think that anthologists such as yourself, that reviewers such as myself, that blog posts, that the networks that we have through, um, through Twitter and LiveJournal and Facebook and so forth, can lead me to the books I want to read probably better than award nominations can. I think every reader develops their own way of filtering through what's out there to find out what they're interested in. 
We all know that the single most uh, influential thing to get somebody to pick up a book and read it is word of mouth. That's not going to change. It's and that's not, not a change. bad thing. It'll be what our friends tell us. So, yeah, we'll see how we go. But we'll find out something else to talk about. Not awards, not Hugo, something else next time. And until next then, time. Gary. Until then. Until then, right. now, as ever, we remain your slightly befuddled Mullers of Coot Street. <laughs>